Our New Testament reading will be John chapter 19, verses 28 through 37. John 19, verse 28 through verse 37. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And you could turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. We're in the second cycle of these oracles a book comprised of three cycles and the general cycles moving from judgment to salvation. And this is the last oracle of judgment in this second cycle. And after this, there is a turn, a turn to the fullest and um, brightest expression of the wonders that God is going to do in the future. And it's worth noting that verse 12 is the exact center of this book. It is the turning point, as it were. So lend your attention. This is the word of God. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, you who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, you who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be a plowed field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Oh 
Oh, Father, how good is your word. Uh, How excellent in its operations. And we know, Father, that left to ourselves, we would uh, ignore your word. We would ignore the confirmation of your word as the destruction of Jerusalem proved that indeed this was a true word. That the reason for its fall was not the military excellence of a kingdom of long ago in the form of Babylon, but the reason it fell is because you are holy and your judgments are operative in this world. And so we ask that you would give us the eyes to see that you speak, that we can know you, that your word truly sets forth who you are. Lay our hearts bare. But lead us not into despair, Lord. Open our eyes to the true revelation of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time stepped forth, the true servant, to stand in the stead of sinners and to bring the lost into your house. May these things be pressed upon our heart, Lord, such that worship and awe and humility issue forth from us in true and proper response. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. In Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, we meet Raskolnikov, a young man who believes he has the right, if not the duty and the responsibility, to commit murder and to steal the wealth of someone whom he deemed to be worthless, a non-contributor to society. He deemed himself as a great contributor society to society, lacking only the means. If he only had wealth, if he only had money, then he would indeed be one of the great ones. And for that reason, he thought it his responsibility, his duty, to take the means from one who was not a contributor, even though doing so meant killing her. He commits this shocking crime. And unsurprisingly, everything goes wrong for him. His grand plans fall apart the moment he enters upon this sinful course. Instead of opening for him a world of endless possibility with the stolen wealth, a world of nightmare opens for him as he finds himself with a debt of guilt that begins to drive him mad. And to make matters worse, he carries this guilt alone. He knows he's guilty, and no one else really does. In fact, his friends and his family continue to treat him with kindness, and this kindness only serves to worsen his madness, because he knows what he really is, and they don't. 
It is a nightmare of a world. What would escape look like for such a man? What would salvation look like for such a person? One who is guilty of high crime, carrying a burden of guilt and a tension that is opened up because of it. I am guilty of this crime, and yet I continue to receive kindness. No one seems to be aware of it, and I have not been judged for it. Micah continues to address the corrupt leaders of God's people. He says, would that you felt the angst of Roskolnikov over your crimes. Instead, you've made peace with your sins. You have joined together what no man or angel ought to join together. Sin and God's holy throne. Sin and God's holy name. And you have become at ease with such an unholy union. So God, in his infinite goodness and kindness, once more sends word to expose their hearts, to expose their sin. As I was considering the plight of Raskolnikov and the resolution of Dostoevsky's novel, all of the attempts that he undergoes to escape his nightmarish world only worsen his condition. It is only being exposed publicly that opens for him the way of salvation. We continue to need God's word to expose our hearts. You and I, don't we? We are remarkably skilled in self-deception. Sin is remarkably powerful in its deceiving effect. And so we continue to need God's exposing word to shed light upon our hearts, whether it is for the first time or for the 10,000th time. <laughs> if you are not a Christian, you bear a burden of guilt that is much like Roskolnikov's. And kindness, goodness, continuing to adorn your lives and the fact that you have not been asked to pay the full debt of sin, far from proving that you are in a safe condition, shows that your condition is worsening. For in being senseless of such a state, one shows that they are truly vulnerable. But as Christians, we're not immune to it either, are we? These are the people of God that Micah is addressing. We're not immune to the sinful flesh. We're not immune to the allure of the world. We're not immune to the temptations of the devil. And thus, we are in constant need of the exposing power of God's word, which is set forth as a light, as a lamp, which shows to us not just the true nature of the world, but the true nature of our hearts with which we continue to wrestle. But if that were the end of the story, if it were light just shedding its revealing gaze upon the darkness of our hearts, well, be better to shrink back from that. Because why grapple with that if there were no real remedy? 
And thus we're in further need of God's word to expose the place where his holiness is ultimately on display. In the matchless person of Jesus Christ. Who unlike corrupt Israel bore true testimony to who God was who God is, and who God ever shall be. Not just in the blamelessness of his life, but also in the grace and the mercy and the otherworldly love on display in giving that which was most precious, the Son, to stand in the stead of sinners. This is what God's word continues to expose. This is what God's word will continue to expose to a world that is in desperately need of the light of the convicting power of God's word and the light of the power of God to save sinners in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we consider the exposing power of God's word. Notice first, That God's word exposes all ranks of people. Second, God's word exposes the heart, that most mysterious region of our existence. And last, God's word exposes his own holiness. First, God's word exposes all people. Look at the first half of verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. God's word addresses all people. God is no respecter of persons. He is no respecter of rank. He's no respecter of station. He says, I don't care how much money you've made. I don't care how highly esteemed you are in the ranks of man. I don't care how popular you are. I don't care if you have done what no other human being has done and thus have enshrined your name amongst the ranks of those who will be heralded until the end of this world. I don't care. God's word addresses all, irrespective of station, person, ethnicity, circumstance. It is an all-exposing word. This is what we mean when we say that God shows no partiality. Consider how many features of human existence count for something amongst us. I'm reading a novel currently. Uh, I won't recommend it yet because I haven't finished it, so I won't say the name. But <laughs> it envisions a church in the late 19, in the late 19th century where to be close to the front of the church, you had to buy a pew. You had to actually have some money. We laugh, we scoff, but money still counts for stuff, doesn't it? It still establishes who the great ones are, who the little ones are. There's so many features that the kingdom of man sets forth as actually accounting for something before God. God says... None of it. None of it in the final analysis establishes ultimate standing before me. God's word lays everyone bare. It is no respecter of persons. 
The highest ranks among God's people are here brought to the bar of God's word. Heads, rulers, prophets, priests. There's no hiding behind their titles. There's no hiding behind their positions as if that gave them carte blanche to do whatever it was they wanted to do. No, conversely, in God's economy, the more responsibility, the more The higher the position, the more the responsibility. We got there in the end. The more responsibility attends the higher position. This is God's economy. God's word addresses all, irrespective of rank, circumstance, and person. In the once and future king, public charges of treachery are brought before Arthur against Guinevere, his wife, and against Lancelot, his greatest knight and his closest friend. Good King Arthur sits upon his throne in the judgment room. He's the king. If he refuses to hear them, who's going to stop him? If he rewrites the law to accommodate his wife and his dearest friend, who's really going to oppose him? But that's not what this excellent king does. He knows the lesson that the best rulers of earth have learned. That the king is not the law. That the king is subject to the law. And this for the good of all. But how opposite is the case most of the time. And that's plainly the case on display in Israel here under Micah's ministry. The leaders fail to realize that they are servants that they serve as one accountable to the Lord of the land. You hear this subtly in verse 11. Her heads, her priests, her prophets, whose? Zion's, the royal city, thus God's, (laughs) the Lord of the royal city. They are not their own in terms of writing the specifics of the position nor fulfilling those positions with an eye to the one who has given the requirements, the righteous standard to which they are all held. And Micah brings word. He says, I don't care who you think you are. I don't care who you think your daddy was. I don't care what station you occupy in this life. I don't care what your circumstances are. None of that puts you above God's word. There's encouragement for this. There's encouragement in this for all sorts of people. There's encouragement in this for people who are under arrogant and corrupt leaders. So frequently, leaders, whether in the church or in the world, are able to circumvent the justice of man. That happens. That happens a lot. But don't for a second think that they've escaped the justice of God. Would we be so foolish? Just because an earthly court pronounces a guilty man innocent, do you think that's fooled God? The one who searches all things, the one before whom all things are plain, the one who searches my heart, your heart, the one who understands? Not for one moment. Not for one moment do those leaders escape the one who is just and righteous whether in God's providential judgments allocated in this life or in the final day, in either case, 
every sin that is not covered by the blood of Christ will find its day in court and will have justice pronounced upon it. That's encouraging for people who are under leaders who oftentimes seem to skirt justice, seem to get away with murder, whether in the world or in the church. There's encouragement there for us to continue to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. For this is what Christ did. For he was the innocent one pronounced guilty. And did that verdict stand? It did not. For he was raised on the third day and vindicated. So the truth of God will always have out. It's also encouraging for us to consider that even harsh words like this are to be heard by true Christians. This is a pretty harsh word. You think sometimes I get worked up. I bet Micah was pretty worked up here. Sometimes I do get worked up. But Micah got really worked up. You've got to kind of read between the lines. But he's pretty heated right here. Who do you think he's addressing? It's probably Ahaz. Probably Ahaz. Ahaz was the worst. We know who he's addressing. He addresses Hezekiah here. For those of you who missed the grand climax of that, that was supposed to be a pretty good reveal. Hezekiah is one of the best kings in Israel's history. Hezekiah is a good and godly king. And Jeremiah 26, 18 and 19 says that Micah preached this sermon to good king Hezekiah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against him? We are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Good King Hezekiah heard this word. (laughs) One of the best kings in Israel's history. And he did not rise up in arrogance. He did not rise up in self-righteousness, but humbled himself and entreated the Lord's favor. Even the godliest among us will never outrun our need for correction. Even those most advanced among us in the Christian life are always in need of the sobering effect of God's word that consistently keeps us attuned to the heinousness of our sin, to the self-deceptive power that we bear about in us by virtue of our flesh and the excellencies of our God who rebukes those whom he loves. And Jesus Christ, whom, who chastises those who are the object of his undying affection. Let us never be done with being corrected. Let us never be done with being rebuked. For in this, the love of God is shown to his children. Which brings us to the next exposing quality. The exposer of hearts. God's word exposes our hearts. You can look at verse 9, the second half, through verse 11. You who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, you who build Zion with blood, 
and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. What do you think it would have been like to visit Jerusalem at this time in the light of a text like this? What do you think you would have seen? Corruption, perversity, hatefulness, deceit writ large. Sounds like something out of Lord of the Flies. Gotham City, the day of the judges. May I suggest that you probably would have seen something different? You would have seen progress. You would have seen growth. You would have seen success. To the naked eye, this would have been a thriving city. And Micah suddenly points us to that. He says, you who are building Jerusalem. They're building. They're advancing. They're progressing. To the naked eye, this city seems to be doing quite well. And in fact, we know that under Hezekiah, it did quite well. This was a time of remarkable infrastructural growth. Impressive structures were going up all over. It's a time of population growth. Samaria fell. Where did those people go? Well, some of them got deported. Others fled to Jerusalem. So the ranks of the citizenship of Jerusalem swelled. And what happens when you have more people? You have more money. (laughs) Economic growth is continuing. This is an impressive city to the naked eye. This is progress, growth, success. If you were going to write a script for how to build a successful city, you might ask the builders of Jerusalem, how are you doing this? But Micah doesn't rest there. For the rulers had forgotten that man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Fixated on the outward appearance, it's probably not that surprising why they concluded what they did. God is among us. Micah, be reasonable, man. God's not mad. Look at that palace. Look at the cedar. Look at the gold plates. Gold plates. God's not angry. God is with us. He's prospering the work of our hands. He wouldn't bless us like this if he were upset. God is among us. Disaster's never going to come upon us. Somebody says, no, 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 you don't understand. You're looking in the wrong places. I don't care how shiny your buildings are. I don't care how big your census is. I don't care how fat your bank account is. That's not the indication of God's blessing infallibly. God looks at the heart. I got in a bit of trouble once for some carelessness related to this theme. I was doing the dishes after dinner, and when it came to the kids' water bottles, I just wiped down the outside, thinking, worst case scenario, there's just a little bit of water left in there. Well, it turns out Sam had made the kids smoothies, which sat rotting away in there for at least a day and left Sam an ugly surprise and an indication to how hard I was working while doing the dishes. 
Those are the pictures that the Lord uses for this constant temptation to look just at the surface of things, isn't it? Jesus says you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a cup that's wiped clean on the outside, but inside it's stinking and festering fruit. The corrupt leader saw the influx of people into Jerusalem, the wealth that that brought to them, the growth that their city was experiencing. And they didn't see it as an increase in responsibility. They saw it as an increase in opportunity for them to further their own gain at all costs. And that's a good reminder for us. The Lord says, those to whom much is given, much is expected. Many of us have been given much. Give thanks. Rejoice. No need to be ashamed of being given much. Rejoice that God has given you much. But don't boast in the gift. Take no confidence in the gift. Look to the giver and understand that he does give excellent gifts, but he also calls those to whom he's given much to exercise great responsibility. Micah says, I don't care how much you've been given if it's not accompanied with an understanding of what the Lord has called you to as those who have been given much. And so the word of God rips back the veil, this shiny, pretty, growth-driven veil that's barely coating Jerusalem to reveal some pretty heinous hearts. Look at it. Hearts who detest justice and make crooked what is right straight. That's the strongest word for hatred that you can find in the Hebrew language. Detest, loathe, abhor. They abhor justice. They abhor what is fair and right and good. They loathe it. It is repulsive to them. And thus, what do they do? They go about making crooked what is straight. Sin cannot tolerate the existence of what is good. It must conform it to its ugly likeness. It must pervert what is good if it cannot have its destruction. This is the heart of the leaders who are here on display. And not only that, they're desecrating their holy office. Kings who are called to give right judgment can be bought. Priests who are instructed to teach God's people indiscriminately will only teach the rich, and I suspect probably not teach them true things. (laughs) Prophets here who are called to be God's spokesman to his people will give you a word of blessing as long as the price is right. And if you don't have the money, God won't talk to you. These are the foul hearts that are occupying these sacred, holy offices. They've perverted the office of king. They've perverted the office of priest. They've perverted the office of prophet. Showing us what? We are in need of a better king a better priest, a better prophet, whose bread it is to do the will of the righteous and holy one, who gives no consideration for those things which make much of man, who gives no consideration for the things of this world, but sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem to follow in the way of holiness, life, to bring about blessing to God's people. 
Would you believe me if I told you that the corruption and the greed wasn't even the worst part? It was the fact that they did it in the name of the Lord. That's what he says there. Yet, that's a striking juxtaposition. That's like an understatement. (laughs) Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They become at home with their own sin in the presence of the true and living God. Now make no mistake, this is not God's people in acknowledgement of their sin, casting themselves, leaning upon the Lord in trust. This is one who in arrogance and presumptuousness says, because I am a member of this visible community, I can do whatever I want and the Lord will never bring harm upon me. This is the hypocrite's song. This is one of the most precarious positions the human soul can occupy. When one has made peace with the heinousness of sin and the surface that's been whitewashed clean. Micah says that the heart is ugly. Thus says the Lord. Hear, O rulers and leaders. And why is the presumptuousness worse than all others? Why is the hypocrisy worse than all others? Because these officials served as representatives for God. They were the ones who communicated to the people what God was like. Have you ever had a product that you've bought be recalled? Product recalls. A certain product we bought got recalled recently. It's a fascinating phenomenon. The company basically contacts everybody who's purchased one of their things and says, nope, it's faulty. (laughs) We want it back. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Can you do that? A company realizes that a product that bears their name isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It's reflecting poorly on them. And so they take it back. That's how the oracle ends. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. God's word exposes his holiness. And that the people who were bearing his name were bearing false witness. The city upon which his name uniquely dwelt bore false witness. He references the temple here and he won't even call it the temple. He just calls it the mountain house. (laughs) Jerusalem was was a temple. It was surrounded It was a hill with a temple on it. The temple was atop a mountain. The place of God's name, the temple, the nexus of heaven and earth. The only place where true and saving knowledge of God could be found. God says it's just just a bunch of wood on a hill. It's It's not my house. It's just a house on a hill. And so what does he say? He says, I'm destroying all of it. This doesn't reflect who I am. 
This is not an adequate testimony to the wonders of who I am. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house, a wooded height. The holy city, a field. Jerusalem, ruins. The temple, a wooded height. This is not a city of light on a hill, a beacon to the surrounding nations of the true and living God bearing accurate testimony. This is just another iteration of the city of man. This is just another iteration of the kingdom of man that's willing to kill others to get stuff. Lie to others to get stuff. Pervert others to get stuff. It's like it takes its ranks amongst the cities that Cain built. The city that was built on the plains of Shinar, Nineveh, Babylon, Jerusalem. I'm killing it. I'm destroying it. So God swears in His judgment against this city that their sins are going to be the tapestry upon which His holiness is written. We're so tempted to think that God thinks of sin lightly. We're so tempted to think that God winks at sin. Scripture is plain that God doesn't wink at sin. Go back to Raskolnikov's dilemma. Well, I haven't been judged yet, so maybe there is no judge. I haven't been called to account yet, so maybe there's no day of reckoning. What about the flood? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the conquest? What about the fall of Samaria? What about the fall of Jerusalem? Iterations of God's judgments, a testimony that He's holy and that He holds sinners accountable. What about the cross of Jesus Christ? In time and space, Jerusalem became a wooded height when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city and destroyed the temple. There, the city on a hill became a curse. But that was nothing compared to Calvary. The true temple being desecrated. A wooded height as the Lord Jesus Christ was suspended on that cross. Why? Because He was a sinner? Because He deserved such a wretched end? No, because you're a corrupt king. You're a corrupt priest. You're a corrupt prophet. But God is wonderful. And he sent his son to stand in the stead of leaders like this. Leaders like we would be left to ourselves as our consciences continue to bear witness against us as we exploit so many of our circumstances to advance our own gain. So many of our positions to fill the world with our own darkened understanding. All of it bearing testimony that we are not so unlike them. In fact, the only one who's unlike them was suspended upon a wooded height so that sinners like them, sinners like you and me could marvel at the holiness of God on display in one who does not wink at sin and yet has made a way for sinners to live and to know the wonders of this God.
God's word exposes our sin, but it exposes the excellencies of his love. The one who gave his son for sinners. The one who gives life to those who deserve to be suspended in the stead of the son. God's word is wonderful when it says hard things laying our hearts bare because it follows that hard thing with a word of blessing. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, even in the face of a weighty word, you showcase your goodness. That you don't take sin lightly. And and what an encouragement this is. For we see the effects of sin everywhere on display. And to think that you would just turned the world over unto the heinousness of sin and the life that emerges therein is a thought that's too terrible to see through to its conclusion. And yet we see your word bearing witness, bearing witness to the heinousness of our hearts and bearing witness to the judgments which you have issued forth in this world and the great judgment that you declared upon the only one who should have been declared innocent, the Lord Jesus Christ. May he shine forth before our eyes as we grapple with weighty words like this, such that we are not undone, but rather led unto life, salvation, blessedness. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.